Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. We're back for another episode of In the Landscape. Thank you for joining us again this week. It's so exciting to have repeat listeners and we welcome anyone who's found us recently or is listening for the first time. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Kate Sadler here with my co-host, Charles Sadler. And Charles is our resident design expert, certified arborist, landscape designer with his own practice. And we decided to do a podcast on all the topics that come our way in the running of a landscape design business. Yeah, throughout North America, we, we get calls. And there was a person, was it in, I forget the state, somewhere in the South, Arkansas, Alabama, and they wanted to move a big tree and they had the equipment. And I remember I turned them on to somebody that's based out of California that works all over the country. And he did that. And he was able to, you know, there was no money changed hands, but we just shared the information we had. And this large tree mover in California shared the information with this person and they they had the machine and they did it themselves. And it was a success. That's awesome. So that sharing of information is actually something we really love about this business, even if we're not specifically designing your garden. (laughs) We'd love to give you the tools to be able to do so. So that's what this podcast is all about. And some of our episodes in the past have dealt with selecting plants and what to put in certain places. And certainly mostly with a focus in North America where our practice is. We're starting to get questions from some of our listeners, which is super exciting. And you had a question that came up, not a question, and not even really a correction, but a supplement supplemental information to some information we gave, I think, in our very first episode about oak trees and our follow-up about hiring certified arborists. And so can you tell us a little bit about that? All right. So this listener, you know, I haven't investigated it in too much depth, but uh, this listener expressed how, well, there's a phenomenon with oak trees. They have oak wilt. And so... And what is oak wilt? Like, how would you identify that? I believe it's fungal. And and, and we could put links in in the show notes about it. And does it kill the trees? Is it really a, a dangerous? It manifests itself in the leaves, I believe. Oh, okay, so that's a it's a bugaboo of oak trees, right? And oaks are such an important part of, like, they're viewed as one of the most beneficial ecological trees. They provide the there's the flowers, the acorns, the food. So they're almost at the top of the food chain for all kinds of creatures. And so, what what was the comment from the listener? And then he was working, I believe it was in New York State, which I'm very familiar with. There's the DEC, Department of Environmental Conservation. And so their suggestion was what's prescribed with oak wilt is is only pruning more or less during the dormant season, which if you have a a tree care practice, that would really limit, you know, the the amount of time that you could prune the significant tree. And so the DEC was handing out some type of a sealant for the wound, which I believe was if you were pruning after the dormant season which it used to be to put it more or less tar on wounds is, is not a contemporary practice. But in this case, the open wound of the oak tree could allow in you know, th- this oak wilt. That's so exciting. So by mentioning something on the podcast about this old, outdated practice that, that you know, landscape clients should be aware of, it caught the ear of one of our listeners who gave us this additional information, which we can then pass on to you, the listeners, and include links in our show notes to things like New York State's Department of Environmental Conservation and give out a little bit, share more of this information. It's very exciting. Today's show is actually going to 
You might think of it as an accompaniment to our Hello Neighbor episode. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about how to be friendly, good, lands- conscientious landscape neighbors. And one of the great elements of providing boundaries to our landscapes is, to, is, is the practice of screening, planting, fencing. We're going to get into that topic today. So screening is a big part of establishing a landscape and something that you just mentioned, which is the program. But I thought maybe what we'd start with today is something you shared with me the other day that I thought listeners might enjoy, which was a really compelling description of screening done well. You have to give me a hint. (laughs) I'm such a talker. I forget which story this was. (laughs) So you were sharing with me about a trip that you had taken to the gardens of Japan. Oh, right. I thought that might be nice to sort of evoke this specialized screening for our listeners. Oh, right. And And there was a client of ours that had very recently traveled there and sent pictures of one of a favorite garden of mine. Just, so it just reawakened the interest. So let's see, there's three gardens that come to mind, and we'll give all kinds of details in the show notes. There's Katsura Imperial Villa. That's the first one. Then Shuga Koin Imperial Villa. And then Mirin An. So I might not have the pronunciations quite right. So it struck me, you know, historically, if I was to, someone was to say, Describe gardens that have screening, that have hedges. I would often think of hedges. I often think of formal hedges. I might think of gardens in Europe. But when I, when I really started to meditate on gardens that do screening really well, where it's, it could be focusing your view. It's not necessarily obscuring something that's not pretty, but it could be focusing your view. And so these gardens really do that well. So let's see, the first one, Katsura, which is relatively near the city of Kyoto, where you can take public transportation or otherwise. So there's one particular view where you're in the garden, there are hedges, which are like more or less rectilinear, and they frame this view down a paved path. And at the end of the path is this beautifully pruned pine tree. So the screening, what's quite interesting about that is that it's often what you don't see. So they're more or less obscuring everything. All you see is this pine tree. And behind it is, is a pond. And so that's an example of screening where it, it's helping you focus. Like a blank white page, and there's one element in the middle. It's much more dramatic than being full of lots of other elements. The second one, Sugar Queen Imperial Villa, that's quite a special garden. That's far outside the city of Kyoto, where it's, you have to take multiple, there are trains, trams, buses to get there. It's a river valley with mountains. And so this garden is more or less on the edge of the mountains, and you're overlooking this, this river valley, which is the city. And so you rise up. There are three different gardens. So the first is at the street level, and then you rise up, and then you keep going to the very top. So what's neat about that is that from, when you travel from one, to the, one garden to another, there are agricultural areas that are part of this landscape. So we're traveling between these three separate gardens, and there's agricultural fields, whether it's rice there's a, or other products, which are probably leased out to someone. And so these are the imperial, the fanciest, most special gardens in, in all of Japan. And so the screening, it was quite beautiful. There are these pine trees that have been pruned over definitely many decades, maybe, maybe even like a century or more. You're on a straight path with an, that's, a, that's somewhat of an incline, and you're going to this next garden section. And so each garden is probably like between three acres and seven acres, let's say. Instead of trying to hide these pretty humble agricultural fields, 
there are these pine trees at intervals of, I'm going to guess, maybe 10, 15 feet apart. And so there's lots of signs of caring, so to speak, these beautifully pruned pines. And you can see the agriculture, and there's just this one element, which are these pine trees, which is quite beautifully done. The real surprise at that garden is when you get to the, to the third garden, which is the most, it's at the highest elevation. And this friend of mine in Brooklyn told me about this. It was a, an art historian. So you've traveled, so by this time you've been in the garden for like at least an hour or two, touring through it, and you're, you've done quite a hike to get to the top. There's the element of time, so you've, you've invested quite a bit to get to the top. In the final top garden, there's a pond, and you look out over you know, the landscape, and there are hedges. There's a set of stone steps, and there are hedges which start out probably like at about waist height or so. And as you climb up these steps, the hedges get taller. And so by the time you get to the top of the steps, the hedges are maybe seven or eight feet tall. So they're taller than you are. And they've totally obscured. You can't see anything. You're just proceeding up, you know, these steps. And then when you get to the top, there's more or less a humble tea house. So the impulse is to turn around that something is behind you. And you turn around. And so there's your folk, you've been really focused this whole time. And you turn around and you're looking out and you can probably see, I would say, 100 miles or more on the whole Kyoto River Valley. It's quite a, a magical moment when that happens. That's all. And so, so when I think of screening, that's really, it's directing. It's not necessarily hiding something objectionable, but in some cases, screening does do that. But in this case, it really just helps you focus and created quite a powerful moment. That's really beautiful. It certainly is evocative. And I haven't been there, but I can picture it based on your description. So it's exciting to think of hearing about gardens in this way. But we will also include links in the show notes and photos of effective screening on our Instagram, which is under our landscape design firm's name, King Garden. And so we just invite you to follow us on our social media so that you have an opportunity to see some of the things that we're sharing here over the airwaves. So you're talking about the program goals, and this is something that's come up before in our episode, especially on where to begin, it pays to (laughs) planning pays off to really assess what it is you're trying to accomplish. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Having the training as a, as a landscape professional, there's such a benefit to that. And I remember my early days in, in I did my landscape architecture master studies at, Syrac- at Syracuse at SUNY ESF. Like the rigor that we were put through and that your first, sometimes your first dozen ideas are not good ideas. <laughs> and the professors would let you know. So going through that really rigorous, I guess, educational process it just gives you the training to be very discerning and to keep asking questions. So the let's say if there's a, there's a client that calls us and they want to obscure something, or so their first impulse might be driving the program, that there's like a loud road, let's say. And so their impulse is to put up a giant wall. <laughs> and so through all that rigorous training that I've had, you might know, well, like a, a wall is not going to accomplish that, but there could be something else. So taking the client more or less pain point, that should drive the program, that should drive whatever like whatever the goal is. And at the same time, as you mentioned with that example of the Japanese gardens, to see if maybe there's a couple of, or more than one benefit that can be accomplished with the screening. Is there a way to highlight as well as obscure in your landscape? Oh, right. You know, like a point that comes to mind when screening's done really directly, let's say there's, there's a certain kind of a plant, holly or arborvitae or boxwood. When they're lined up in a row, like the joke is they look like soldiers. And so 
when screening's done very literally, in a way it, it can detract from the atmosphere. So let's say you're looking at your neighbor's barn or there's like a Department of Transportation garage or something. And so having this really conspicuous screening, in some cases, it can be such a distraction. So the goal was to obscure something that wasn't pretty, but a very literal translation of just having a row of plants actually calls attention to that. And so there's more sophisticated ways to accomplish that, where it could be the screening can be so subtle that you don't realize it's occurring. So what are some examples of materials that you might use in screening in a, in a landscape? Well, let's see. So when selected materials, that's sort of part of the program. And that would be the question, what time of day are, are you viewing this scene? Or let's say it's like a work setting and you're looking at, you're like at a, like the company lunchroom and there's something objectionable that you don't want to see. It's probably only used during daylight hours. And so it doesn't need to be, doesn't need to look good at night. Let's say it's like a summer house and it's only used in the summer. So the plants in that case, that it wouldn't probably matter if they were evergreen or not. So a very literal screening, I mean, like here in North America, arborvitae, are, which is a type of a, of a cedar more or less, that's used a lot for screening. And I would say that's not a plant that I use much. <laughs> that's like a very literal translation, you know, to, to put a roll of, a row of soldiers. So in some cases, you can have a mixed hedge. Maybe there's some American holly trees at intervals where, the, where you want a taller plant and something that's evergreen. and then there are viburnum, maybe there's which would have beautiful berries in the fall. And even using plants, even using trees, there are different types of oak trees which will hold their leaves through the winter. There's lots of unconventional plants. Really, any plant could be, could be used for screening, and that you really don't need 100% coverage necessarily. Ideally, if, there's, if there is depth to screen, there can be layers too, where you have uh, mounding evergreen shrubs. Then in the background, maybe there's some taller evergreen trees. Then in the midground, there's flowering trees. So different times of the year, there's interest, there's variety. It can attract birds. And so it's, it's not just this static, necessarily, you know, very utilitarian element. It could be very alive and vibrant. Now, there's also, I'm thinking this description of screening as being literal. Um, I'm thinking of fencing. I mean, fencing is a pretty literal screen and and a very good one if you have dogs, as we do. Our two cocker spaniels definitely like their fenced yard. Is there a way to mix up hard material? I don't know what you would call that. Fencing, a lattice, gates, and then plants as well? Or does that sort of defeat the purpose of even having fencing? Is Yeah, good question. When they're mixed well, it can be very beautiful. You see that in European gardens and I mean, and lots of other cultures, of course, too, where let's say there's a privet hedge or a beech hedge, and maybe there is there is fencing with inside that, you know, if you if you really need to contain animals or keep them in or out. But there's more or less a vegetative hedge. And then there's a break. And then there could be a beautiful architectural gate, let's say, which is could be practical to keep people in or out or animals. The mixing of materials when it's done well can be quite lovely. And it can also minimize, you know, like on lots of properties, I will, I'll be the lead and be directing other contractors with the, so I might enlist a fence contractor or another type of contractor. And so the contractors, I mean, they're the experts at the installation, about the estimating, knowing how it's going to handle the weather. And so selling hundreds of linear feet of a, of a pretty fancy fence is often there's often other approaches, you know, and let's say in a garden area where it's going to be very visible from the house, 
it is certainly worth having a beautiful material, beautiful uh, fencing. And then once that goes out of sight, then you can have a very basic utilitarian fence. So it's helpful that site assessment that you mentioned in our planning episode, where you're really not just standing in your yard looking around, but you might even be in rooms in your home and, and taking a look at, again, as you say, like, where does the fence sort of disappear from view? And how can you maybe, maybe even economize in some cases? Right. It can really save money. And that, yeah. it could say, you know, let's go for this, this uh, beautiful handcrafted gate. And then there's going to be a couple dozen feet on either side of that that you see. And the rest of it, it's going to be a ligustrum hedge or a bayberry hedge. And there'll be a wire fence with inside that to keep animals in or out or whatever the security issues might be. And that you really don't need some of those simpler fencing materials will also last longer. If you have a quite a basic wire fence, let's say for deer fencing, it's not going to decay like wood would. And like another phenomenon that will happen, the angle that you see the fence. So there's something like, which is, I wouldn't actually call it screening, but something called a haha, where it's for agricultural purposes, it was done. It was more or less a trench. So you'd have, let's say, like some type of livestock that would be, you'd be at a main house and you'd look out at a field. And so instead of having a fence that would obscure that view, in some cases, the fence would go through your view at a funny angle. Maybe it's not, maybe it wouldn't be 90 degrees. It often is not because of the, of the grading of the land or maybe there's a road. So the haha is more or less a depression and the animals are not going to cross that. And so when you, when it's viewed from a distance, there's a trench more or less, but you can't see it. That actually reminds me of a trip that we took to Rhode Island and there's a sea path that oh, right. is open to the public and takes you past some incredible homes. In, a, in but a Newport. Yes, but it's, it's <laughs> you're in the haha, I guess. You're right. That's a great, great analogy. <laughs> as, as the public. So the folks who, who own those homes, their views are not obscured by those of us who have an opportunity to also enjoy it, which is really a nice mixed use of the land, which is really, really cool. You know, another like kind of component of that and what, Olmsted and Vox did so well in Central Park. One reason that's still so innovative in New York City is all the different programs. There was, I mean, back when, like initially, it was carriages and people and other, they're more or less all these different paths. And so what's so fascinating is that, that there's not that many intersections. So there's lots of bridges. And so that can be done. So like at Newport, people are out of the view of other people. And so whether it's grading, there's all types of tricks with good design where people can coexist, they can be safe too. Someone riding a horse is not going to run over someone riding a bicycle in Central Park. Which actually also reminds me, because you mentioned road, well, and, and I've seen, observed that screening is often used in the fronts of homes where there's a lot of traffic. Uh, I think you had a question from a, a prospective client about screening road noise. And one of the things that's so effective in Central Park, having spent a lot of time there, is that the roadways are actually depressed. Or sunken, yeah, right. sunken. It's New York City. I mean, you hear some sound, obviously, when you're in the park, but you're not getting a whole big, you know, mess of road noise, for, even if you're near some of those pass-throughs where the, the taxis are zooming right across. So what is the issue if, if you're not trying to screen sight but sound? 
in graduate school at Syracuse, remember that was like we really went into sound and that learning how vehicles make a low rumble more or less. There's probably a sound engineer could tell you know like like this like the scientific uh, description, but so the low rumble from the tires, there's almost nothing you can do to obscure that completely. And so what the most effective is having the road sunken. And so there's like the back, the big dig in Boston. So there's lots of projects in the U.S. where they have sunk, sunk roads, and then there are now green spaces over those roads. I'd actually be curious to see, I'm sure that those are projects that are taking place all over the world because it is such a powerful way to kind of reduce the impact of car traffic. So might be might be fun to kind of look up some other examples mm-hmm. and post those to the show notes as well. Yeah, there's that phenomenon, Robert Moses in New York City, creating lots of highways. There were plenty of part, there were lots of good things he did, but by lots of the roadways that he constructed, they're elevated. And so the phenomenon is that they create sort of more or less this undesirable corridor. And, and I forget how many blocks, and maybe I'm going to guess it's like three blocks from the roadway is undesirable. It's so loud. So plant material can obscure sound, but it's more or less the higher pitch sound. So it's, it's not the low rumble of the tires. It occurs to me that one of the challenges maybe of screening, if I'm just planting out in my garden, you know, I can play around with spacing and how plants are kind of put together. But screening, even if it does have depth, as you've said, and it does have variety, still needs to be somewhat dense. So what are some of the planting tips, requirements that we should watch out for? Because there obviously is a danger in packing too much together too tightly. But then how long do we wait for it to fill in and give us the screening that we're after? Oh, right. That's a really good point. You see that, like we enjoy hiking, taking walks in the woods. So there are plants that are the American beech. And so that can grow. You take a walk in the woods, like particularly in the winter, it'll still have its leaves on it, which are like a blondish sort of color, even though it's, it's not evergreen. So that tree is shade tolerant as it's maturing. So we can grow in a pretty dense condition and eventually it can become a dominant tree. So it can sustain decades of being in the shade and then eventually be sort of um, be the big dominant tree in, in the forest and shade other trees. That's a great point. So is, if you're creating dense layered screening, if plants shade each other out, like let's say you have two cedar trees that you put together, so like, a, like an American cedar, you know, it's like a very tough, for a slopey, rocky site, maybe it's very hot, I've used that. So where the trees more or less grow together, many species are going to lose their foliage. So if you don't see that, it could be perfectly fine. There's, but there's trees, let's say like some of the spruces that grow so quickly and so if those trees are planted more or less 10 feet apart or 15 feet apart, it's really not enough. So it might look, it could be for five or 10 years, it would, it would screen very effectively. And then those trees would get so big that it's not even that they would grow together and lose their foliage. They would just sort of open up completely. And so you might lose, they'd lose their lower branches and you'd have this giant tree this giant row of trees, and you have no screening, really. So selecting plants that can tolerate some shade would be really important. So their boxwood can tolerate some, viburnum, some of the hollies. So they're definitely plants. And then a mixture of shrubs, ornamental trees, larger evergreen trees. So a mixture 
by doing a very thoughtful design, you have a mixture of plants that, that could grow up and mature together and not outcompete and not be a problem. In terms of, I know this because we've worked on some hedges together <laughs> and the care and maintenance is very important because things are growing so closely together. You know, air circulation can be inhibited. Stuff can get kind of fun- fungusy. Oh, right. You can get <laughs> uh, up close scale, and personal aphids yeah, and with some plants that needed attention. So, what what is one of the what are some tips for maintenance of of your tightly grown screening plant material? Well, I guess having it assessed. So it's when it goes in, things look great. I remember I've worked on projects where you know, some of these very large residential projects where there's many different people providing services. There are different contractors, different designers, architects, engineers. I remember the feedback. I was working in one part of the property and there was hedges in another part. And I remember the comment was, oh, these have only been here for a year. They don't need, and I think this was in the, in the Southwest. So plants grow pretty quickly. It's warm, the long growing season. I remember the comment was, oh, they don't need like any thinning. I was explaining the benefits of thinning. Even after a year of shearing them with, with mechanical trimmers, they become pretty dense. And so, and then there was another, I think that might have been a hedge of boxwood. There was another hedge of, I think it was Burford holly, which can handle the high temperatures in the, in the southern U.S. And it's, it's drought tolerant, so there's, it's used quite a bit. And so if you're only pruning the top of the hedge, it gets very dense there's no air circulation. And so, so many plants, particularly as the temperatures appear to be getting higher and there can be more extreme weather, it's favorable for all kinds of fungus and insects. And, and so the thinning really helps, even when it's a young hedge, doing some thinning. So the new growth is not only at the top, but there's new growth from the interior. That's really what the thinning encourages. Now, if any of you out there have hedges that you're proud of or screening is um, particularly effective, feel free to drop us a line and send your photos. We'd love to post them. Um, You can reach us at connect at kinggardeninc.com. And we're on Twitter at in underscore landscape. I mentioned Instagram kinggardeninc. And we're also on Facebook. And all of the feedback that we get is really appreciated. We're able to make corrections, add to episodes that we've had previously, and provide new information that we weren't aware of. It gives us a way to do further research and then share that with our listeners, which we're, we're really happy to do. So all of that is very exciting, and we look forward to hearing from you. Anything else about screening in particular that you think we have yet to cover in today's oh, episode? That third Japanese garden, I could just uh, give a ble- like a brief snippet on that. Oh yeah. So that's called Mirin An, and that was it was not an imperial garden, but it was um, it might have been a, a diplomat. I can't remember the, per- the person's exact biography, but and so what's so neat about that is that you're in Kyoto, right in this more or less in the city. It's, I remember when I visited this garden, it was it might have been in May, which was would be like being in in the southwest U.S. in May. It was like ninety degrees or more, very hot sunny, dry. And then you enter this garden through a wooden gate, and it is this green oasis. And there's a masonry wall which goes around the property. I would say it's maybe an acre or so in size, so it's, which is not that big, you know, for this world-class garden. And the screening that's done there, it's completely naturalistic. Remember, my professors would always say that, you know, that 
we would say, oh, it's like a natural design. He's like, it's not naturalistic means it's, it's like human hands <laughs> created this. <laughs> and so there's, so with the naturalistic screen, I think Capability Brown actually had, had formulas for this. And the trick is not to use, not to use too many different plants for naturalistic screening. Like his rule was if the landscape was in the distance, you know, which is, let's say, a quarter of an acre or half a, half a mile away, not to use more than three plants. So you'd have oak, maple, and beech, let's say. Murion more or less does that. And there's this naturalistic sort of corridor that you walk through. And then the outermost part of the property, almost all the plants are evergreen, which is an, an important component. So there's year-round screening. And then the one, and then there's, there's a water feature, like more or less like a very low wide stream that passes through and there's waterfalls and other elements and actually the waterfall is an element to help screen some of the higher pitch sounds which can help do that and then the one snippet there's a term borrowed scenery which is more or less which is it's shown at Miranon where there's a mountain which is in the distance way beyond the edge of the city this naturalistic screening that goes around the property it frames that so you're in the city and the only thing you can see out is a mountain, and you feel like you're in the mountains, uh, which is quite a magical experience. So screening is all about obscuring, which I think most of us would assume when we're talking about that subject. But as we've observed sort of over the course of this episode, it can also be about focusing attention, which I think is a really powerful concept and kind of transforms the whole purpose of screening into rather than just fixing a problem it can be enhancing and transforming a space in a really positive way. So that is all the time we have for this episode. And of course, we're going to be working on another episode for next week. We're really delighted to see people listening all over the world. It's, it's truly wonderful. We do look forward to hearing from you and feel free to share with us your landscapes. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.